You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Now, if you'll turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 7, we read together verses 14 through 24, John chapter 7. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason Moses has given you the circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is before your word now that we come, and it is our desire and the expressed desire of our hearts that you would sanctify us by your word and that you would show us a glimpse of our Savior and his glory today in your word. We thank you that your word is true and that we can have confidence that it is inspired and it is authoritative and we will willingly yield ourselves to it. We ask that you would teach us today, O Spirit of God, for the glory of the Father and the Son, we ask in his name. Amen. Well, John said something back in John chapter 2 that was sort of a very profound statement, and we have seen this, uh, we've seen this illustrated in John's gospel time and again as we've made our way through. It was John 2:23 when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast. Many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for this is it. He knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's the profound statement. Jesus knew all men. And we have seen that as we've gone through John's Gospel. Jesus knew the history and the names and the and the heart condition of his disciples. He knew Judas and what Judas would do before he ever chose Judas for to be a disciple. Jesus knew the woman at the well and her history and her past and her character and the condition of her heart. Jesus knows those whom the Father has given to him. Jesus knows those who are his own. Jesus knows his sheep and he calls them by name. He knows all men. And that's evidence even in the teaching of the Lord. Every time you read in one of the discourses, whether it's the the uh, New Birth Discourse of Chapter 3 or the Divine Son Discourse of Chapter 5 or the, the Light of the World Discourse of Chapter 8 or the Bread of Life Discourse of Chapter 6. Anytime you read Jesus' teaching, you get this sense that His words have a way of, of piercing right to the heart of every issue that He addresses. He just lays bare the veneer and all of the, the surface stuff and all of the, all of the makeup on the surface of the issue to cut right to the heart. And He just has this way of diagnosing and seeing right past people's hearts. So he knew the heart and intentions and the desires and the mind of those who would believe on him. And he knew the hearts and the intentions of those who were hostile to him and rejected him. And Jesus has a way of, when he addresses those who are hostile to him, 
of exposing the darkness of their heart and the place of their true affections and their hatred and their unbelief and all that was at the root of their heart. He just lays it bare. It's a beautiful thing to see. He does it here in John chapter 7 to those who were opposing him and seeking to kill him. We found out in chapter 7, verse 1, that the Jews were seeking to kill him. In the passage that we just read here to begin with, we find out that the reason they were seeking to kill him still in chapter 7 had to do with that healing of the man at the pool back in chapter 5. And Jesus makes reference to that, making a a man whole on the Sabbath. That was still at the issue for them that he had violated that Sabbath law. And so here we are 18 months later in John chapter 7, and Jesus is dealing with the issue again. Their intentions have not changed. Their motives have not changed. And what they're desiring to do, kill him, that has not changed. They are just looking for an opportunity to do that, to kill him. And so they lay a charge at Jesus against his teaching in verse 15 when they said, how has this man become learned having never been educated? And the implication was he, he did not get his education from one of our institutions here in Jerusalem. So he leads the people astray. That's basically what is at the heart of their issue. He's leading the people astray. And you saw up in verse 13, 12 and 13, how that was some of the, that was the sentiment of some in the crowd. No, he's not a good man. He's leading people astray. And the Jews, Jewish leaders kind of grabbed onto that and said, yeah, he, he, he's, he, he's teaching of himself. He's teaching by his own authority. He doesn't get his authority from any school or any group or any rabbi in Jerusalem. He's never been educated under us. The implication being he speaks of his own authority. Now, last week we talked about how his answer in verses 16 through 19 is really designed to, to, to get to the heart of two things that they were accusing him of. And these two things are the two marks of a false teacher. Remember those two marks of a false teacher. We actually dealt with one of them last week. We're going to deal with the second one today. There are two things that will always characterize a false teacher. Now, false teachers have other characteristics, not just two. There's a multitude of them. If you want to read about them, you can read Jude or Second Peter. They, they describe the false teachers of that day and of this day. All false teachers are the same. They all have these characteristics. So false teachers have more than two. But listen, they will always have these two. These two things will always be true of any false teacher. Number one, this is one we dealt with last week, He will speak from his own authority. And number two, he will seek his own glory. He will speak from his own authority, and he will seek his own glory. And we dealt with the speaking from his own authority in verses 16 and 17 of last week when Jesus said, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone's willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. And Jesus is there saying, Everything I've taught and everything I've said has been the Father's work and the Father's words. I'm not speaking of my own initiative. I didn't invent this stuff out of my own head. I get this from the Father who sent me. And he answers that. The, the false teacher will speak from his own authority. And that manifests itself in a number of different ways. And just in case last week you thought that I was only describing those who appoint themselves to ministry, that's not always the case. Sometimes you can have people who speak of their own authority having been appointed by other men. It might be a seminary professor who's appointed by the, the board of directors or the department head or something like that. Or you could even be a pastor or somebody who takes a church who has been appointed by a, a board of elders or deacons or a denomination or something like that. The issue of speaking from your own authority has nothing to do necessarily with whether you are appointed by other people or not. Or you might be the type of person who just sort of grabs onto something. So I'm going to start my own work. I'm going to start myself a Bible college. And I'm going to teach my doctrines there. Or I'm going to start myself a church. And to start my home and then we'll grow big and I'm going to gather around these people. It might be that type of an individual, but it could necessarily also be somebody who gets his ordination or his appointment from a group of people in an authority. Speaking from your own authority has nothing to do with whether or not you appoint yourself. Listen, it has everything to do with what you do with this authority. That's the issue. You might be appointed by a board of men and yet still view yourself as over this. 
You can tell from a man's teaching whether he views himself as one under authority, the authority of the Word of God, an objective external standard, or whether he views himself as one in authority to pick and to choose what he teaches, and whether he really submits himself to the Word of God and feels compelled to teach the whole counsel of God, or whether or not he feels that he is in a position of authority over the Word of God, and he just uses the Word of God to advance his own agenda, his own kingdom, his own ministry. Now, he speaks from his own authority. Now, that's the first characteristic. The second is that he seeks his own glory, and Jesus answers that in verse 18. Verse 18 and 19, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Look at the beginning of verse 18. These two signs of a false teacher are connected. They're always connected, by the way. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. The one who speaks from his own authority, who views himself as someone in authority and only uses talk about God and about God's Word and God's Word to advance his own teaching, his own kingdom, his own agenda, his own glory, the person who speaks from his own authority will always seek his own glory. It's inevitable. You know why he does that? Because he or she can be a Sunday school teacher or an elder or a teacher or a seminary professor. He or she does not view themselves as one under authority. He doesn't view himself as one sent by anybody. He simply views himself as one who took this task and as one who is in a position of authority to use for his own ends. So the one who speaks from his own authority will always pursue his own glory. And the way that that happens is the way that manifests itself, that sin manifests itself, is so varied and there's it's so many ways that you could literally spend two hours just listing the ways in which this happens. That men seek their own glory. They will always seek their own glory when they speak from their own authority because they view themselves as one who is under no one greater. See, the person who speaks from his own authority doesn't view himself as one sent by somebody far greater. He views them, there's nobody greater than him in his universe. In the universe of a false teacher... A man like, pick your false teacher, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Joel Osteen, whoever it is. There's no one greater in their universe than they are. The one that sent them and the one who is sent is the same individual. They sent themselves. And so they don't view themselves as somebody who must give an account for what they teach or what they speak or what they do. They don't view themselves as one under authority. They view themselves as somebody in a position of authority who can use that authority to advance their own kingdom. And so the one who speaks from himself will always pursue his own glory. I am convinced that the individual who truly wants to pursue and seek after the glory of God will expound Scripture. That's it. That is how God is glorified. God is glorified when His people, all of us together, myself, you, the elders, the deacons, anybody in the position of leadership, Sunday school teachers, all of us, when all of us come together under the authority of Scripture and say, I am just as much under this as everybody else in this room, and you read the text of Scripture, and you explain the text of Scripture, and the people of God can see the glory of God revealed in the Word of God and be drawn near to Him, that is how God is honored and glorified. But the individual stands up and says, let me quote to you the New York Times, and, and let me play for you a movie clip, and I'll, I'll give you my latest thoughts on this movie clip, and let me show you the, the Gospel according to Harry Potter. Those people are not interested in expounding Scripture, and I'll tell you what, no matter what they say, and no matter how they say it, they are not interested in the honor and glory of God. If they were, they would do the one thing that honors God in His church, more than anything else, which is the explanation of the biblical text. That is how God is honored and glorified. And that is how God is glorified among His people. When His people come together and say, we will pursue the glory of God together as a people, all of us under this authority, the authority of the Word of God. And we want to 
see the Word of God. We want to know the Word of God. We want to hear the Word of God. We want to obey the Word of God. We want to understand this book because in understanding this book, we understand the mind of God. In understanding the mind of God, we are able through the truth of God to know God and to glorify Him. The individual who seeks the glory of God will take the book of God, he will open it, he will read it, and he will explain it so that people might know and understand that book. That is his consuming desire. His, his desire is not to give you his own thoughts. His desire is to, that you might know the mind of Christ. So the one who is speaking from himself is pursuing his own glory. The opposite of that is true, by the way. The one who does not seek his own glory is not speaking from his own authority. That is how you can tell if somebody is a God-sent teacher or not. You can compare the attitude expressed at the beginning of verse 18 with that of the apostles that Paul demonstrated. Paul always viewed himself as a man under authority. He was an apostle. And I would argue he was the greatest apostle. And I would argue that he is the single man in the last 2,000 years that apart from Jesus Christ has had a more profound impact on world history and on people's lives than any other individual who has ever lived, bar none. The only exception to that would be Jesus. So he was a man who was given the position of authority as an apostle. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament books. He planted churches all over the Roman Empire and was almost single-handedly responsible for the spread of Christianity from Jerusalem to Rome in a little over 30 years' time. And yet, what, what did the Apostle Paul do? What was, his, what was his conduct like? He viewed himself as a slave, as a bondservant, as one who would say, I, I didn't come here to impose my authority, though he could have, but he didn't. He came as one to humble, to seek, and to serve, and to love, and that was the marks of his apostleship. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 said, we didn't come to you in persuasive wisdom of men. See, Paul never viewed himself as one who was had the authority or the, the power of changing the message or the, even the medium of the message. Paul always viewed himself as a herald. I have to just take what has been given and to proclaim it and to teach it as it is. And Paul never viewed himself, he would have said, I'm not free to change the message and I'm not free to change the medium. I don't change the message and I don't change the medium. I have been sent to do this I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. I'm not going to come up with the latest gimmick. I'm just going to do what has been handed down to me to do, and I will discharge my duty and leave it to God. First Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said, I didn't come in persuasive words of wisdom. Even though man's wisdom would have said, you know, tweak it in Corinth. You'll get better results. Paul said, I didn't do that. And instead he said, I just simply discharged the message as a faithful herald, and I trusted in the power of the Spirit of God to work his work among you so that God might be glorified in that. Paul didn't seek his own. He sought instead the glory of God. He writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, and he says, We did not come and preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus and ourselves as your slaves for his sake. We didn't come preaching ourselves, Paul said. The other apostles did. The false apostles, not the other twelve apostles, but the false apostles who called themselves apostles that Paul addresses in 2 Corinthians, they preached themselves. That's what they were interested in. But Paul wasn't interested in that. He didn't speak from his own authority because he was seeking the glory of the one who sent him, and that is his master and savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That was Paul's method, and that was Paul's manner. You realize that stealing glory or taking glory from God or seeking your own glory is one of the most heinous acts of blasphemy possible? Do you know that? You and I, and listen, let's be honest, all of us are prone and tempted by that in some way or another to one degree or another. It might just be your desire to do something and have other people see it and even appear humble while you're doing it for outward glory. It could be your desire to teach or to preach or to be up in front of people just so, other, so you have one person looking at 170 and 170 looking at you. It might be that desire. Or it might just be the desire to do whatever you do well so that other people pat you on the back for it. It could be the desire to just simply 
take glory from God or control from God and have other people appreciate you rather than the God whom you serve. There are thousands of ways that we are tempted to do this, to steal glory from God. But however it is that you and I are tempted to do it, and all of us are tempted to do it, it is the most, one of the most horrific acts of blasphemy possible. And we ought to hate it, and here's why it's blasphemous. There's no being in the entire universe that is more worthy of infinite glory than God is. And when you and I try and steal that glory from Him or seek glory for ourselves, what are we doing? We are taking something from God that we have absolutely no right to when we ought to be giving the one who has every right to it the very thing we are seeking to take from Him. It seeks to take from God what we ought to be giving to Him and to put ourselves in the place of God. It is really just the manifestation of the sinful heart, the darkened heart, and the self when we seek after other men's applause in whatever form that takes. Whatever form it takes. It's a heinous act of blasphemy. That's what false teachers do. That's what false teachers do. And listen, by the way, you might think, well, in describing false teachers who seek glory for themselves, Jim's talking about the guys with the big media empires. The guys on TV with the radio programs and the books and the tracks and the podcasts and the daily newsletters and the massive websites and all the influence and speaker conferences. That's who Jim's talking about. The guys with the massive media empires. Not necessarily true. It's not necessarily true. It's just as easy for somebody to seek his own glory in a church of 30 as it is in a church of 30,000. Sometimes easier. One man seeks his own glory by building his own kingdom and it's large. Another man seeks his own glory and builds his own kingdom and it's small. But both men are seeking their own kingdom and building, uh, seeking their own glory and building their own kingdom. It can happen in a church of 30 people where the one guy is so loved and adored by everybody that he becomes the center of it and everything he does revolves around him. That can happen. It doesn't have to be a media empire. It can be a small operation. Listen, it can be a house church with 10 people. Somebody seeking their own glory. But the one who's seeking the glory of the one who sent him, that is God, will not speak of his own authority. He will give you scripture. He will rightly divide it. He will teach you the truth. The second mark of a false teacher is that he seeks his own glory. And that is the opposite of what Jesus did. He says at the end of verse 18, and these words really can be spoken of nobody, in the strictest sense, nobody but Jesus. He says, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. He is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. That phrase, can Jesus is not describing anybody but himself. He's speaking in third person. Now, there is a principle here for any who teach or preach or teach Sunday school or lead a Bible study or whatever. We'll get to that in just a second. But I want you to notice what Jesus is saying about himself. In him, he was true, and there is no unrighteousness in him because he was seeking the glory of the Father. Now, let me ask you a question. I'll admit at the front, this is a trick question. Did Jesus seek his own glory? Did Jesus seek his own glory? Now, you might be tempted to say, well, he did do signs, and he was worshipped by men. Remember in the boat, in the calming of the sea, Peter bowed down and worshipped him. Thomas confessed, my Lord and my God, John chapter 20. He was worshipped and adored by people, and he never refused that. He never corrected anybody who offered him worship, or anyone who gave him glory, or anybody who confessed him as Adonai or Lord. He never refused any of that or corrected anybody who attributed to him the names and the titles and the attributes of divinity. But did Jesus seek his own glory? Well, the answer to that question is, in one sense, yes, but in another sense, no. And I'm not trying to speak out of both sides of my mouth, but think this through for just a second. If Jesus, the divine Son, were interested in seeking his own glory, he never would have come here. He would have stayed in heaven where he was worshipped by angels. He had all the conveniences and, and uh, the, the blessings and benefits of being deity in heaven before he ever came here. 
But he humbled himself, and he considered himself as less than nothing, and he took upon himself the form of a servant, and he came here and he emptied himself and became a man and was united with humanity, his appearance as a man, and he humbled himself and died and was obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. He says in John 10.45, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Even the angel said he came to save his people from their sins. Jesus said in John chapter 5 to the Pharisees, they probably the, many of the same ones that he's addressing in John 7, he said, I do not seek glory from men, but you seek glory from men, and for that reason you will not believe me. So in one sense, he did not seek glory from men, and we would say this, at the expense of the Father. But is it possible that the Son would not be glorified? Is that possible? The glory of the Father is so tied in with the glory of the Son that for the Father to be glorified, the Son must be honored. That's why Jesus said in chapter 5, and I think it's verse 23, where he says, So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. And he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So the glory of the Son is inextricably linked to the glory of the Father in this way, that if you want to honor the Father, you must honor the Son. You cannot dishonor the Son and still honor the Father. So it is not possible that the Son should not be honored and glorified because He is deity, but neither is it possible that the Son could be honored or glorified apart from or at the expense of the Father. So how is the Father honored when the Son is honored? How is the Father glorified when the Son is glorified? In one sense, Jesus did not come seeking His own glory, and by that we would say, by that we would mean, He did not come seeking glory at the expense of the Father. He did not take from the Father's glory for Himself. He glorified the Father and directed men to glorify the Father, knowing that in due time He would be glorified. John 17, He prayed, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. He is glorified. He will be glorified. For all of eternity He will be glorified, but not apart from the Father. With the Father. Jesus did not come seeking His own glory at the expense of the Father. He came seeking the glory of the Father, which He knew would result in His own glory. By the way, you and I will share in that glory in eternity. If you've trusted Christ, you will be glorified. You will share in that glory, bask in that glory, give God glory, and be a participant in that glory. But you and I don't seek that glory, do we? No, we don't. We don't pursue that glory. We don't want glory for ourselves. We want the Father to be glorified, knowing that when the Father is glorified, we will share in and bask in that glory. Because, as it turns out, the glory, because of the work of Christ, the glory of the Father is inextricably linked to our future glory as well. Profound stuff, isn't it? Wonderful stuff. All right, back to John chapter 7. So the principle for you and I as, as true teachers or as those who should be trying to teach and seek after the truth, I said that Jesus is referenced that there, He is true because He seeks the glory of the Father and there's no unrighteousness in Him. That can't be said of anybody in this room. Nobody is true in the sense that Jesus is true. Nobody can say there is no unrighteousness in me. No human teacher, no matter how godly, no matter how great, no matter how wonderful of a preacher like Charles Spurgeon or, or Martin Luther, none of those men could ever say there's no unrighteousness in me, and none of those men ever said that. A true teacher is one who is keenly aware of his own inabilities and his own frailties and his own deficiencies. And he doesn't seek to gloss over those. Instead, he seeks to magnify the God who sent him. That is the mark of a true teacher. And in this sense, we are true to Christ, and we are faithful, and we are doing what we are doing with no malice or unrighteousness in our motives when we are seeking to honor him and not ourselves. A false teacher does the opposite. A false teacher knows his frailties, and here's what he does. He draws glory to himself to gloss over those frailties so that nobody sees them, and all they see is the magnificence of the man. That's what a false teacher does. A true teacher is one who knows his weaknesses 
and doesn't seek to gloss over them, just seeks to honor the Father and to be faithful in that, a false teacher wants nobody to see his weaknesses, nobody to see his frailties and his adequacies. And so he covers up that by seeking his own glory. J.C. Ryle said this, He that undertakes on his own responsibility and without being sent by God to speak to men about religion will naturally seek to advance his own importance and to get honor for himself. Speaking from himself, he will speak for himself and try to exalt himself. But he, on the contrary, who is a true messenger of God and in whom there is no dishonesty or unrighteousness, will always seek the glory of the God who sent him. End quote. Now, if you're in a position of teaching or preaching or Sunday school teaching or leading a Bible study, let me just say to you, you understand the profound nature of what it is that you are called to do. The, prof- the profound responsibility of seeking after the glory of the God who sent you. That is a sobering responsibility and let it sober you that you've been given that task. Let that sober you and let it humble you and don't seek to gloss over your inadequacies by stealing glory so that nobody sees it. That, that's the mark of a true teacher, to know your inadequacies Live with it. And if you're going to be like Paul, glory in your weaknesses. Knowing that in your weakness, God manifests his strength. If there was ever a group of people in all of the nation of Israel who were glory hounds, it was the Pharisees. You realize that? Who is it that's accusing Jesus of seeking after glory by not being appointed teacher? It was the Pharisees. Nobody was more ostentatious in their desire for fame and glory than the Pharisees. Jesus, do you remember John chapter, or Matthew chapter 6, where John, uh, Jesus addresses that issue of the Pharisees seeking after glory? How did they fast? They would neglect their outward appearance. Why? So that you could see them across the way. Oh, he's fasting over there. See the guy across the block over there, across the street? He's fasting. You can tell from his appearance. I want everybody to know when they're fasting. And when they gave, blow a trumpet or a horn or something, draw attention to it. I'm giving. I'm dropping this in the box. Everybody see it? And the more change, the better. We'll give in pennies so that they all rattle into the bottom of the box when they hear it go in and everybody will see that. And then when they when they prayed, they would stand on the street corners, Jesus said, and give long, verbose, ostentatious, loud, uh, lots of these and thous, probably used the king's English, in order to draw everybody's attention to how pious and holy and righteous they were. And they would extend their garments. The longer the garments, the more holier the Pharisee. And they would add all of the phylacteries and the ribbons and everything that hung down off of there because the more ostentatious was the outward display, obviously the more righteous that they were. And they would seek the best seats at the synagogue and come in and, and take the finest place and hope that other people would lie up behind them. There was no group of people in all of the ancient world more committed, more zealous for their own glory and for stealing glory and their own self-righteous display than the Pharisees. And here they are in the temple accusing Jesus of that very thing. Oh, the irony. These men accusing him of seeking after his own glory, leading people astray for his own purposes. And if there was anybody who was innocent of that, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet that's exactly what they are accusing him of doing. I want you to notice now in verse 19 how the Lord Jesus turns the tables on them. And this gets to the issue of knowing the heart. And, and just and, and in a perfect way, he turns the tables right back on them. Look at verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you seeks to carry out the law? Now, they had accused him of being unrighteous because he was leading people astray as a false teacher, seeking his own glory. That's unrighteousness. That was a violation of the law of God. So that was their accusation of him. You're unrighteous. And Jesus is now saying, Moses gave you the law, yet none of you carries out the law. What is he doing? He's turning the tables on them, now for the second time in this passage, and saying, it's you who are unrighteous because Moses has given you the law, and you don't carry it out. Do you remember the first way that he turned the tables on them? 
They had accused him or they had called into question his qualifications to teach. He hasn't been learned in any of our institutions. And what did Jesus do? He called into question their qualifications to be hearers. If your heart was obedient, you would know of the teaching, whether it is from God or not. And here for the second time, he turns the tables again. They've accused him of unrighteousness. And right back on him, Moses gave you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law. Unrighteousness is a violation of the law of God, is a failure to keep God's moral standard. And all men, we know this, all men are unrighteous. All of us are. We have no self-righteousness. We have no righteousness that would give us merit before the throne of God or the case of, uh, in our case before God's throne at the end of time, at the end of our lives. We have piled up unrighteousness and there is nothing that can gloss that over. We have no righteousness. But Jesus has righteousness because there's no unrighteousness in him. And they had accused him of being unrighteous and he is pointing out, you have violated the law. Now there seems to be two sentences in verse 19 that don't seem to go together well at first reading. Moses, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And we, at first reading, those two, those two sentences seem to be, they don't seem to go well in that sentence, and, and here's why. It almost seems like you take a, a right turn. You're talking about the law, and then Jesus, why do you seek to kill me? Is, is he starting another subject? Is he bringing else, some, something else up? What's going on there? Let me suggest to you, in order to kind of catch the sense and the flow of the passage, now this is somewhat speculative, but I think if I give you a bit of an illustration, you'll be able to see how verse 19 is supposed to flow. I want you to imagine for a moment a bit of a pause between the first sentence and the second sentence. And then I want you to put yourself in the minds of the Pharisaical Jews to whom Jesus was speaking. So here's how, here's how this would go in the conversation. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Now put yourself in the mind of a Pharisee. You are accusing us of violating the law. You who healed a man on the Sabbath and trampled all over our Sabbath traditions. You who blasphemed by calling yourself equal with God. You're accusing us of violating the law of Moses. We are Pharisees. We are priests. We are Jews. We study the law. You didn't study under anybody. You've never been to any of these institutions. This is in the mind. You've never been to any of these institutions of higher learning. You didn't come out from any school in Jerusalem. You've never been educated. And yet here, you set yourself up in the temple to teach other people. You presume to do that. And you you accuse us of violating the law. When it comes to the law of God, we could say with Saul of Tarsus, our brother over there, that when it comes to the law of God, we are blameless. We keep the law every day. We study the law. We live by the law. We we tithe of our mint and our spices. We keep the minutia of the law. Every little gnat, every little jot, every little tittle, we seek to keep all of it. And you accuse us of violating the law. We never violate the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now, can you see how those two go together? Moses gave you the law, and you don't keep it. What do you mean never keep the law? If anybody keeps the law, it's us, not him. Why do you seek to kill me? What has he done? What law had they violated? Is not the hatred in the heart the same as murder? Is not the desire to kill somebody the same as murder? It is. To be angry with your brother puts you in in jeopardy of divine judgment because you have violated the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. They were plotting a murder. They were planning a murder and had been for 18 months, waiting for him to come into Jerusalem so they could seize him and kill him. What was in their heart? Hatred and murder, and they have violated the sixth commandment. And he says to them, Moses gave you the law, and you have failed to keep it. 
evidenced by the fact that you're seeking to kill me. Unbelievable, is it not? They could stand there and think of themselves as law keepers when they are plotting somebody's murder in violation of the sixth commandment. And that's exactly how Jesus turned the tables on them. It is you who are unrighteous because you have not kept the law of God. And the evidence of that is that you are seeking my murder. Jesus knew it back in John chapter 7, verse 1. He knew of their intention to kill him. Listen, friends. Everybody in Jerusalem knew of his intent, their intention to kill him. Verse 25 is the worst kept secret in all of Jerusalem that they were wanting to kill him. So what do they do? What do you, what do you do when you got your hand caught in a cookie jar? And somebody's called you on the carpet and they've exposed your heart. What do you do? If you're self-righteous, you deny it. Not me. No, no, no. So look what they say in verse 19 or verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon. You are demon possessed. Who is seeking to kill you? What was the answer to that? They were all seeking to kill him. And he's just revealed that. He knows their heart. They have been caught. They have been indicted. He has proved to them that they are violators of God's law. And what do they do with their accusation? They, they utter a statement that is so blasphemous and so far from the truth that it can hardly fall off of the lips of any well-meaning Christian to call him demon-possessed. You have a demon. You are possessed by a demon. Who is it that seeks to kill you? That is such a profound accusation, such a horrific accusation. We'll flesh it out next week, that accusation, and Jesus' answer to it. I want you to notice how the Lord Jesus dealt with this issue. By pointing out their unrighteousness, they have violated the law. He is pointing out to them sin, which is the most loving thing he could do, to point out to them their sin so that they might seek salvation in him. That is his desire. But we'll save the accusation and Jesus' answer to it for next time. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is in your kindness and your grace that you have that you have revealed to us our sin and brought us to a saving knowledge of your Son. We thank you for the glory of the Son, the divine Son, who came to this earth and did not seek his own glory, but sought your glory. And as a result of that, he is both glorified and will be glorified. And we, as being in him, will share in that divine glory. We thank you for your glorification of your Son and the part that we will get in that in eternity future. What a marvelous and awesome gospel it is that takes undeserving sinners, those who are unrighteous, and turns them into saints and to sons, and then gives us a share in that eternal inheritance. You are truly a good God, good beyond our definition, good beyond words even, to describe your kindness and your grace. And we pray, God, as those who have been given the the charge of teaching or sharing your word and living our lives in acts of service and obedience before you, we pray that you would give to us hearts that do not seek our own glory, but seek only to honor the glorious Master who has sent us. May you be honored through your people and glorified as we seek to pursue your glory and tell others of that glory. In the name of your Son, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.